The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, startups, creatives, philanthropy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I grew up a single mom of five children, and my mom would make beautiful meals out of nothing. And I think that, that I was uniquely prepared to make beautiful, one-pot nutritious meals to go out to all these folks. And what we realized, what we were doing indirectly, was educating folks on healthy eating. One gentleman in his 80s uh, wrote Kate and said, hey, uh, my daughter's vegan and I've been laughing at her for years, but you sent out a tofu chili and I loved it. Can I get more? And we knew then we were on to something. Do well, do good, do both. This is how COVID disrupted and evolved the mission of the Underground Kitchen, the nationally renowned exclusive dinner pop-up concept that is now bent on nourishing the food insecure. Stick around for the story. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Enjoy full disclosure on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ News, Virginia's NPR news station. You can get in touch to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Joining me in Manchester, Richmond, Virginia, on the south side of the river, are Michael Sparks and Kate Houck. They are CEO and COO, respectively, of the Underground Kitchen USA and the UGK Foundation. How are you? How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. I got to ask you, so this people in New York tipped me off to this several years ago, and you came here, Michael, I think from New York in 2009. I came here in 2012. You were pulling off these Fancy, unbelievable, $150 a head, super secret, hush-hush pop-up dinners in mysterious locations. That's right. And that ultimately morphed into this underground kitchen community. First effort where you, in the pandemic, when everything was locked down in hospitality, you turned to feeding upward of 275,000 Richmonders. That's right. I got to take you back. And before we unpack any of this, and I know this is a bit of a kind of a pop quiz thing, Manchester. It's vital to this conversation. We were here in your studio last night for a sumptuous dinner that you plated for your cause, but I can never get Manchester 200 years ago out of my mind and the right. docks here and what they represented That's and right. the, the underground kitchen and that you picked here to put up your flag. Talk to me about that. So it was really strange. Um, when Richard and I, my partner, uh, moved here for his job. He's a doctor at MCV at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, and he had a job offer to move to Virginia. I had never even thought about living in the South at that point, but I had something in me that said that this would be my home. So we came down to visit and VCU punked us and put us up at the Jefferson, as they do for any candidate coming down here. And anybody that gets up at seven o'clock in the morning to ask my then Yorkie uh, in the morning, there's a place I need to live. So we decided to move here and not thinking about what the South represented and uh, and all the things that being an interracial couple, um, being a gay couple moving to Richmond, I thought, you know, it'd be very interesting to see what life was like down here. So we bought a house in the museum district. Well, to meet our neighbors, we started doing these lavish dinner parties. And these dinner parties sort of someone looked at me one day and I was in the fashion industry before and wanted a change in my life. And so 
I loved cooking. I loved entertaining. And our house in New York was the party house because everyone would come there and end up there after clubs or whatever, whatever. But we started throwing dinner parties to be in the museum district to meet our neighbors. Those dinner parties just grew. And eventually Richard was like, you know, you need to get a space to do this or something to get out of the house because everything was being staged in the basement for what was happening upstairs. And I came to Manchester and I met during that process a guy named Ralph White, who was the head of the River Systems at uh, that time. And he said, Michael, I'd love to take you and Richard on a hike on the Harriet Tugman Trail. And I was just in the middle of branding Underground Kitchen. And I thought, wow, these trails represent and this area represents so much. With Harriet Tugman Trails comes right down through here. And I thought the Underground Kitchen would be really, really amazing. Step back for a minute. Where we're sitting right now is hallowed ground. That's it's, right. It's a site of atrocity. That's the right. The slave docks, I mean, the, the transatlantic trade was outlawed here, let's say 1807. That's right. But well into 1865 and the end of Civil War here, Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, people were sold up and down river. That's right. And they came through Manchester. That's and right. And this trail of tears over the bridge, back and forth over the bridge. I, I just reading about this stuff because there's no true monument to it right now. That's we hear right. about the site of the old slave jails and Lumpkins and the Devil's Half Acre. That's right. But I'm struck here being last night, Kate, and, and, and both of you, that this is kind of an up-and-coming Tribeca Soho-ish type area That's for right. Richmond. But it, it, it probably sits on human remains. That's right. It does. And a, a lot of the other companies that we've talked to that have been um, developing businesses around Shaco Bottom and in Manchester all have a, a shared interest in bringing awareness to the fact that that's where we still sit because a lot has been swept under the rug, but also putting in an effort to be the change going forward, to acknowledge what happened, but to to make things better and bring people together in a new history for Richmond. I mean, just a footnote on this, at least 10,000 enslaved people every month. That's right. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the argument is could be anywhere from a million to four million people were transacted through Richmond. You could do an ancestry swab test now, and many African Americans can originate uh, some sort of ancestry to Richmond, Virginia, which yeah. was the hub well, of the slave trade. Just recently, um, my brother, who did his ancestry trade, uh, found out that we actually came through Shirley Plantation, which is just a stone throw away from uh, uh, Richmond. And I've been there, didn't even know it, felt the chills, felt something about this. And as I grow, I guess it's going to our 15th, 16th year in Richmond, I feel it's home. I don't want to go anywhere. I think it's important for me to be here. It's important for what we do and what we represent. And we represent the change of Virginia, the change of our history being swept under the rug. But we do it through food and wine. And that's interesting because food and wine can be the great equalizer. In, uh, in telling a story without being offensive. Yeah, we found it's a it's a it's an amazing neutral ground to begin conversations and difficult conversations, That's right. and not glossing over issues, but at least bringing a disparate group of people together to begin conversations that no one's been comfortable having in Richmond before. And again, over food and wine, which turns into friendships and fun where people then have, have had that beginning together, that neutral start and feel comfortable saying, I might not ask this the right way, or I don't even know what question I want to ask or how I want to talk about this, but having the space for that other person to say, it's okay, let's just start. Michael, where were you born and raised? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm. Yeah. The chipped ham sandwich and the pierogi. 
So, <laughs> of course, you would bring that up. Um, I was, it, it was really funny. My love for food and my love for culture came from Pittsburgh because of the Polish culture there, the Italian cultures there, the Afro-American experience. My grandparents are actually from the South. My grandmother was from Augusta, Georgia, and my grandfather from Columbia, South Carolina. And they migrated during the Industrial Revolution to Pittsburgh for work during the Industrial Revolution and uh, educated their daughters. My mom has five sisters, call them six in one hand and half dozen in the other. <laughs> they were the women who molded our lives. And from that ex uh, experience and growing up in Pittsburgh and leaving right after school, going to New York to become a fashion designer. And that whole experience and that whole sort of family experience and the whole Southern sort of culture still in our, in our veins, it prepared me for what I'm doing today. And that's creating experience and telling a story. I want to get to the pivot, but before we do that and illustrate this, illustrate for our, our listeners, again, I want you to picture us in the UGK studios in Manchester, Richmond, Virginia, not far from the old slave docks and the hub of the, at least the intrastate enslaved person industry that uh, supported much of the South and especially Richmond, Virginia for much of the 19th century. About two miles north of this, you have the old slave jails, which almost sounds Orwellian to call them slave mm -hmm. jails. People come here, at least initially through the, the Middle Passage and everything. They're covered in sores and stench and misery, and they're broken up and they're shackled. And under the cover of night, to kind of cover it all up, they're taken to the slave jails as if they committed a crime. But then even past that today is site of maybe North Churchill and some of the worst dereliction in the city. And this kind of gets into the poverty and hunger that you both are addressing right now. You can draw a direct through line from what's happening in the most impoverished wards of Richmond, Virginia, and what happened here 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, it's a it's a funny thing in a, one of our, we did an event down at Fort Monroe last year. Slavery may have begun here, but so did freedom. And that's what we want to talk about is freedom, that freedom to have equality and food equity, to have equality and freedom to do what wasn't been able to be doing over you know 200 years ago and making that change, but talking about it. And that's what, what I found as a expat moving to Virginia is that a lot of the folks from Virginia really don't want to talk about it. And a lot of the white folks are embarrassed about that about their past. It's just, are we creating a platform through food and wine with old techniques that can talk about what we have in common and not what, what sets us apart? What I was getting at, though, is how much that residue still exists. Oh, yeah. The Emancipation Proclamation was what, in 1863? The Civil War mm -hmm. nominally ended in 1865. The monuments only came down in 2020. Right. You know, the really crazy thing about that, and I, Kate and I talked about this often, we lived a block away from the monuments. And I didn't know, as an Afro-American, what those statues stood for. I just thought they were beautiful pieces of art that represented. I never knew what they were put there for. And when I found out, I felt guilty. I felt guilty that I didn't know and what they represented and who they were. This past three years has been so, since the death of George Floyd and all the, the consciousness and the Black Lives Matter movement has opened me, as an Afro-American, has opened my eyes to so much more about our history. And Well, and, and as the white girl sitting at the table on my side of it, I didn't know either it just that's the thing that's terrifying is it was the those monuments in particular were put up for a reason and they just were as i grew up it wasn't like there was an indoctrination but you just like it's always been that way so we just kind of went on with it but no one ever talked about it and what's interesting robin is that we're finding out that a lot of the people that we bring together at the dinner um like you were 
a part of last night, a lot of the people that we bring together that are willing to talk about it and willing to begin to create a different conversation around this are are not um, typically born and bred in Richmond. They're all outsiders. You know, I'm I'm Virginian, but as anyone south of Fairfax will tell you, I'm not a Virginian Virginian. I was born in Northern Virginia, which is a whole different thing. I always thought it was one thing, but apparently not. Sure. So it, it's just interesting to me that that mindset is here and that people are just, it's been that way. So we just don't talk about it, but we also don't move anything forward. And that's one of those things that we want to begin to change. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Michael Sparks and Kate Houck of the Underground Kitchen and the Underground Kitchen Community First Meals Program. It's not-for-profit offshoot. We are in the south side of Richmond, Virginia, in Manchester. The Underground Kitchen, again, for those of you who don't know outside of Richmond, has been a pop-up dinner phenom. Friends in New York and L.A. have been asking me about it. I've been in Richmond for 10 years. This hush-hush, super-secret society that shows up at these venues, the very last minute it's announced. But something beautiful happened. We're going to get into the discussion of the first for-profit side and then how it spawned in COVID. But tell me about launching this, Michael, from the kind of the salon New York-inspired thing in the museum district, which, by the way, used to be called the Devil's Triangle back in the day. That's right. They now call it the Museum District of That's Richmond. Right. <laughs> but you guys started doing this around 2010? Uh, 2010, 20, uh, 2009 started re- sort of creating the foundation for it. Toward the end of 2009, 2010, we launched it. What was that first like? So again, you're picturing yourself here, a person of color, a gay man right. with his partner, uh, a physician, right. and in a Richmond that still has not taken down the monuments, which That's- has changed a lot, let's say. It has been known as an LGBT forward city. Its food scene has been exploding. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. That's right. (laughs) I think that our edge was that New York international experience. I mean, it was what we do. It's how we do, you know, when you entertain at home. And there's something like it's different in Southern hospitality. It's a little bit, I would like to say, more sophisticated. But there's something chic about it because it's not just the food, but we dig into the culture. We find farmers who are doing unusual things and um, and working with the environment. We find uh, creators who are doing beautiful pottery. Everything is curated about this experience. It's about it's about it's about culture. It's about other cultures. It's not just black and white. It's Asian. It's Indian. But we find the best of them to come and prepare. And I want to speak to the very first underground kitchen, the very first public one. My husband and I came to. And Richmond is very, as you said, it's very staid in many ways. There are, when you move here, there are, you can be part of the country club crew, where you can be part of the soccer mom crew or the fashionable West End crew. And my husband and I had worked and lived in Richmond and Charlottesville and had young kids. So we really didn't have time to think about finding our people. Sure. And we signed up to come to this dinner because long Michael and I were Christmas party buddies for years before he did this. But the very first underground kitchen was on a February evening. It started snowing and you know, Richmond and snow, like every, everything shuts down. My husband's from Boston and he said, if no one else shows up, there's more food for us. So get in the car. By the time we got down to Manchester, snow was going sideways. There was about four inches on the ground and we walked in here and the place was packed. And so it was people who were willing to come out in a snowstorm in Richmond who had no idea where they were going until 24 hours, 12 hours before 
no idea what was on the menu and no idea who else was going to be here. And we walked in and we said, we've found our people. <laughs> These are the kind of people we want to be. Were you charging for that first event? Yeah. All the uh, funds for the first uh, year of Underground Kitchen went to food uh, nonprofits uh, that helped with disparity. So it was sort of a fun thing to do. And after the first year, my partner looked at me and said, uh, you need to take this business above ground because it's costing me a lot of money. <laughs> and and so we it's that- so intriguing like it's somewhere between fight club and eyes wide shut yeah right with a culinary <laughs> with a culinary element but people on your reputation said you know what i will pay and i will show up you don't even have to tell me about the chef or anything no. right not not only i will pay and show up i will sit at my computer waiting for the tickets to be released and i'll type my credit card number as fast as damn possible right so that i can get two tickets because for some reason someone not mentioning any names made it so you can only buy one ticket at a <laughs> so time so let's capture that because this is full disclosure and we want to get to the kind of the marketing essence right. of the for profiting side how did you establish that buzz as a newbie how did you get that word out through this is pre like twitter's explosion pre instagram oh yeah it was word of mouth. And then funny enough, people showed up with people who weren't on the guest list. So of course, like we do, we let them in. So we had 60 people in this 2000 square foot space. And we wanted it to be organic. We wanted it to, to grow organic. And we wanted to be careful about who we invited into our space. It's just like it was like our home, sure. you know? And so it, we worked it like that and uh, kept it. And it still is very much. Doctors used to call me and says, I'm waiting to go into surgery to get a ticket to Underground Kitchen. Attorneys would wait to go into court to go get tickets for UGK. So, And it's still kind of that way now. I mean, and you have to really know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so I knew somebody who had me at this charity dinner last night for you. And let's move this forward to what happened to all of this. A major through line in full disclosure the past couple of years is discussing how people contorted during and after the pandemic. Things were going swimmingly for you. You had how many dinners under your belt by then? We were 42 cities up and down the East Coast. And Michael and I that year before COVID, ironically during COVID, was the first time we ever had a staff. We've yeah. never had a staff. Michael and I did 54 events ourselves. 42 cities, such as? Charleston, Columbia, South Carolina, Memphis, Miami, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and and you're kind of using the system in the cloud. Is it an Eventbrite system or your own proprietary we'll, system? We're own proprietary system. And then you get word out there, and the idea is how many people per dinner? It's capped at it was it, it used was to be 60. At sixty, and now we've gone down to thirty because thirty is our sweet spot. We want thirty and anything above twelve to fifteen people, and you can do private dinners with us now. So we just find out that you lose. We feel like caterers, and we're not. Uh, you lose that cachet of the intimacy, intimacy, yeah. the and conversation. Our format, even with the sixty, was like the table you sat at last night. It was one long king table if we could fit it in the space, or two, two tables of thirty. Sounds a little like the bouncer at Studio Fifty Four. Kind of wanted <laughs> pretty much. I've always wanted to do the red, I'm, the red rope out front. <laughs> I'm, I'm aging myself here, but not that I was at Studio, but. I want to understand this. So across almost 50 cities, you descend into a city, you parachute in and you use a local chef or maybe somebody you brought in externally. Our Part of our brand was exposing chefs to other markets. So we would take a chef from New York and bring him down to Raleigh. We would take a chef from Richmond and take him down to Charleston. And we would 
rent these lavish places, gorgeous places that have some historical background. And when overnight, we'd change it. We did it in movie theaters. We've done changed alleyways into Little Italy. We've done a grit manufacturing plant down in with Alligator Pond down in Columbia, South Carolina. Old, old gas stations. Any shipping containers and stuff? No, but we did have a in an alley in D.C. Yeah. We had that art gallery that was just an old cinder block just an old cinder block like shack in the back of do you mind my asking you kate how you make the ends meet you have to bring in sponsors you charge a ticket food is expensive labor is, and, and travel and everything taking the show on the road oh when the show was on the road it was our best marketing tool for the rest of the lines of revenue that we wanted to build which was corporate private dinners things like that. But being on the road ended up being, that was our marketing budget, essentially. what We, we broke even hmm. on that with travel. And that's why we didn't have a staff. We would, you know, we would target what our tour was going to look like, what cities we were going to hit. We would start hitting up our connections for media contacts and start creating the buzz, get the tickets out. And Michael and I would go into a city a day or two ahead of time and go to dinner and assemble our team mm -hmm. from the bartenders we met, from the wait staff we met. Um, if we needed a sous chef, we, you know, you've met Michael now. He'll walk into the restaurant and be I'll back in up. the kitchen in five minutes and be everyone's best friend and say, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow night? You want to go? So we would literally like Avengers assemble. That's right. We, <laughs> had a, we did a big project for a major corporation down in Charleston and we, uh, Ended up having a moving company help service us to do offsite events around the city of Charleston. It was just, I mean, it's always been that way. I mean, that's what we do. We're production folks. <laughs> you're, produ you're, you're, you're selling experience. You're taking yes. this on the road. And it, as I've said with my shows, when we do live shows, it is a bespoke experience. It's never going to happen the same way ever again. Like if I had, you know, I had Chef Peter Chang at the Hippodrome, the old Jazz Age Theater in Jackson Ward here, plating a dinner, making public radio. That's never going to happen exactly that way. No, Again, right. people were willing to pay and show up and even come down from Montreal and from New York and other places. And you use this as a marketing vessel mm -hmm. on the road to the extent that it'll help you get what private label business? Private label business, uh, corporate business. So there were several corporations before COVID hit that were national and international that were going to have us come in either to do private dinners for their C-suite teams or dinners for their top clients. Where we found our sweet spot in corporate was bringing together those intimate dinners for advertisers, for sponsors, for people like that, where they could really get to know each other. And that's where the business happens. I mean, so essentially, we're just more fun than a golf course, I think. I know I'm going to piss off a lot of golfers out there, but it's where people could gather and have the chance to sit back and talk. And it wasn't in a banquet room somewhere. It wasn't in a boardroom somewhere. It was where people felt comfortable. And we've always talked about whatever that secret sauce is. Right. People got comfortable to sing along with Aretha at the end of the night. And it, it's a different way of connecting with someone and doing business. Kate, tell them about the Baltimore experience. Oh, <laughs> this <what>? was probably, <laughs> this is when I thought we were going down for real. Uh, it, it was, yeah, Michael, uh, we decided we were going to be in Baltimore and we always hit, we had another business partner at the time and we always hit up Google Earth and Airbnb and, and places just to throw out all the hooks to see where we could find an interesting space. 
And we found one in East Baltimore, redone warehouse, you know, a lot of like what's going on down here in Manchester, beautiful old brick warehouse, high ceilings, exposed brick wood, the whole thing. What our business partner didn't look at was the neighborhood that it was in. (laughs) So first of all, Michael, (laughs) Michael is stuck in traffic on 95, getting up there with the chef and a truck full of everything day of the event. So it's, we have to be set up by six and ready to go. It's one o'clock and he's calling me saying, this is it we're done. We're screwed. We're never going to make it there. They make it there with 45 minutes to set up for 30 people that night, or was it? 40 something, I think. So not only that, but they pull up in this neighborhood. There are cameras mounted at every corner. There are cops every other block, people out barbecuing on the front steps. And Michael said, you know, I don't know. Houses boarded up across yeah, the street. Yeah, it was I mean, crack shacks. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was incredible. And so I called Kate. I said, this is going to be it. This, this, is, this is done. Is done. And so, so, so and somebody said, Omar coming. No, just kidding. No. So the, the <laughs> folks started arriving. We're still setting up. And we're like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing The chef ever. had to make uh, fresh, fresh, pasta. fresh pasta was on the menu. So he had 45 minutes to set up the kitchen and make fresh pasta for people who so, are starting to come in the door. So it's starting to come in the door. They drive up in Ferraris, Mercedes. So the our driver, our, our, our logistics person said, oh, I got cousins up here. So we he called his cousins to come down and watch their cars. People were arriving. We're still trying to make pasta and setting up. And it was just, it was a cluster of crazy. It was just cluster. And then... But you turned it into, like, Michael, again, any place where we are, and we talk about this a lot, you're coming into our living room, you're coming into our home. And so Michael said, hey, we got the wine, let's just start opening wine. So people start drinking wine, they start helping the chef make pasta, setting the table. It was wine o'clock. It It was totally wine o'clock. It was thing. And at the end, you know, I was waiting to go on the internet to see who was writing bad things about us. And I think about six months later, uh, we said, well, let's try Baltimore again. And the same folks who came to that event came to our new venue, which was the Afro-American Museum in uh, Baltimore, and they were disappointed. They were mad that we weren't in the we, East we End. We weren't in the East End anymore, <laughs> and they were mad that we... Did. I'm telling you, there's a fight club element to it. There's an <laughs> element of this whole thing. And I'm like, do these people know what uh, I was sweating bullets? Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and tell your auntie, is fulldradio.com. We are on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station, Radio IQ. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs are always open. If you are just joining us, we are talking about the elusive Underground Kitchen, Richmond, Virginia, and the Underground Kitchen Community First Meals Program. My guests are CEO and founder Michael Sparks and COO business guru Kate Houck. We are in their studio in historic Manchester, Virginia. I understand that things got so hot for you that Netflix came knocking. Yeah, well, a production house that represented Netflix came and we did a sizzle reel for a show. And... It's still kind of working with the production house. You know, COVID has knocked a hole in everything. So we're still waiting to see what that looks like. But we're still open. If you're looking for a great TV show, we have a great one for you. <laughs> Same thing here. My yeah. thing got shot down. But tell me about March of 2020. I remember I was at home and, and listeners out there who hear this, they say Robin Farz is going to talk about being with his wife when the school district you know, canceled the rest of the semester and the NBA season was punted on and you knew something was coming across the pond. Oh, yeah. It, it actually happened in 2019 for us because we were in Boston. Remember no, that, that was in 2020. Started? Was that 2020? That was 2020. 2020. But, but before that, in, in that fall of 2019 is when those first little things about COVID started coming out and the coronavirus. And 
Michael every day. We were working out of his house in the museum district. And he'd come down and he'd say, I'm going to get the Corona. We're all going to get the... And I just kept telling him, no, come on. And then we were doing a corporate event in Boston in uh, February of 2020. And uh, it was around the time of the super spreader up there. that 300,000 people got infected from someone in Europe. And we were there. And we got infected. Turned out we were at the same bar they were. <laughs> night. And, uh, Did you have symptoms? Uh, oh, yeah, but that was a week or two before they really started saying what the symptoms were. So it was still when they were trying to keep it. We thought we had the flu. Right. We flew home. No, no mask. I mean, no one. Nah, it was, nobody knew. Well, we were slathering everything in Purell back then. Yeah, nobody right. knew anything. Yeah, but no, not even then. There was no mask. There was no Purell. There was nothing because we had no information. So we went home. I know we probably infected everybody on that plane, but not knowing what was going on. And we, Kate was sick for- I was uh, down for about six weeks. Six, six weeks, weeks. And I was down for about three weeks. And not knowing, it was during that time when we were sick that- they started reporting on if you have these symptoms, if you blah, 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 then it's COVID and, and it's serious. I mean, I was, I was down. I'd lost. I, when, just you were about, da- when you were down and symptomatic and out for the count for those several weeks, did you game in your head that this is something that's going to shut down all of hospitality? Kate showed up at my door and she looked at me and she says, you know what we got to do? And I said, yes. So we refunded tens of thousands of dollars worth of tickets. We shut everything down and uh, Kate and I pity party. And I yeah. think we- All of our corporate contracts called and said, you know, the company that we'd just been with, we were ready to go do an international thing. And they called and they said, I have no idea what's happening, but we need to put all this on hold. Like, obviously, we're well, not going to- It's gonna- not like you were scrutinizing your business interruption insurance. Like, I, I think Danny Meyer- tried to put in for it or sue his insurer to cover this. Yeah, we no, we weren't. We were more thinking our whole business is built around being, bringing people together for these intimate events. And obviously, we can't do that. And it's pretty obvious that travel is going to get knocked for a loop as well. So we're pretty much, that's the basis of our business right now. So we're screwed. We just need to shut down and figure out what's going to happen. And the interesting thing is we've been talking about, you know, kind of parachuting into these cities and dealing with things like Baltimore. Like we were uniquely positioned to pivot. It's what we do. No matter how much we plan, something always goes pear-shaped. You know, all the wheels come off the wagon at least three times a day around here. So we did have two weeks of really severe pity partying. Well, it came, <laughs> that came with a lot of wine and Kahlua in pity the morning. Party. And we called my mom and my mom said, uh, I didn't raise two fools like this. I want you guys to figure out, you and Kate are going to be fine. I want you to figure out a way to help people. And that night I had a God experience and I went to sleep and God told me to make soups and breads for everybody in Richmond, uh, anybody and everybody who needs it. And so I called Kate the next morning mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, I was ready for our, our morning, like, Kalua filled coffee. coffee phone call where we got to. So boot. God told you Kalua didn't. Tell you. No, Kalua didn't. God came. No, we had more. Kalua told us more, <laughs> but not that. To understand this, you had a lot of work in process. If it was a lot of food in the fridge, a lot of food in the fridge, a lot of chefs who couldn't work. Well, and to understand kind of our model that way, like I said, we didn't have a staff. So we didn't have chefs on staff, but we have a whole network of chefs that we work with. So we were kind of intimately into what was happening in the brick and mortar restaurant and hospitality scene. So Michael would get text messages and calls from all our chefs saying they shut down my restaurant. You know, they say I can still use the kitchen, but you know, I have no work or my restaurant is closing or my private chef business 
is going under. So we had all these people in our network who had families to support that suddenly had nowhere to go. And we did have the the fridge full of food because we had a whole tour scheduled That's right. and ready to go. And so- So these chefs and servers and people in the hospitality industry would- help the community ostensibly and help themselves. They could take food home for their family. That's right. Exactly. None, of, none of them were unemployed during COVID with Underground Kitchen. Any chef that had association with us worked and got paid. How did you have revenue? Did you just do it out of reserves? So this is Richmond, uniquely Richmond. Richmond's a special place. When they hear things and people need help, the money started pouring in. And Kate, with Kate's leadership, we she raised, I think, almost half a million dollars. Half a million dollars in, in grants and donations that first year. And reserves, not business, but Michael and I put a lot of our personal, obviously, time and money into this to keep it going. Because once we delivered meals that first week, we had 175 households that we delivered meals to. And Michael and I split them up and drove them around the city and heard everybody's stories and what was going on and how terrified everyone was. And we were, it was like post-apocalyptic weirdness out here. We were the only people on the roads. That's right. There was nobody out. And we had special letters from the mayor from the mayor saying that we were allowed, that we're allowed to be on the road. Yeah, yeah. To, we right. have a per, we're not just driving around being weird, but we have a reason that we're out here and we're front line. And I'm going to get a little hokey here, but ergo this paradox that I'm told by people who have helped till it hurts that if you wake up depressed if you wake up missionless if you have that free fall feeling and the sunday scaries and the monday scaries and everything if there's nothing else you can do helping will get you out of bed and will increase the balance sheet of the universe and so even though you guys didn't know where your next kind of six months of income was going to come we knew we had we had a mission and that got us out of that re-energized us got us off the couch let got me, us out let of me bed cite, meanwhile i'm citing here from a, a profile i saw you in us news and world report which picked up an rtd story in 2021 more than 34 million people including 9 million children faced food insecurity according to the united states department of agriculture families in low-income urban areas often live in food deserts with limited access to a grocery store what we have here in north churchill whether it's if you're lucky you have a convenience store or a dollar tree you can buy some mac and cheese, uh, maybe a pint of milk for 3 or $4, but no fresh greens. I understand from uh, Steve Markell, you work with his uh, supermarket in North Church Hill, that the people who worked there, when they started working, had never seen an avocado in their lives, like a live avocado. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, we talked to people who did uh, food drives up in North Church Hill during that time. Uh, the other thing we found, not only on the food identification but what to do with it. They were trying to give away bags of potatoes and people weren't picking up the potatoes when they came to pick up food. And one woman said, I started hawking potatoes like I was a carny. And she said, this is a French fry. <laughs> <laughs> I can, you can bake it. It's you can also, fry it. It's also mashed potatoes, but people didn't know what to do with it. There was all this food available right. that wasn't processed, but if it didn't come processed, they were just kind of out of ideas. Parallel to this, in the United States, according to the USDA, food waste is estimated at upward of 30 to 40% of the food supply. We know our restaurants. We know the rules say you can and can't donate certain things if it's been opened up. I had this experience once when I was uh, working at a Starbucks uh, on River Road and there was a snowstorm coming in and they said, sorry, everybody, we have to shut this down. And she brought out the trash bin, the manager, and she started to clear everything from the case into the trash bin. I know it's processed food. It's not great for you. But Still. I said, you know what? I could take those around the neighborhood, give them the kids and everything. They're like, oh, that would have to be on you because we're not allowed to donate or everything. And you multiply that times the tens and tens of thousands of restaurants with 
extra food that's get dumped out every night. And as you said last night at the dinner, this is methane spewing food yeah. in landfills. <laughs> right. And so you have this mission right now to capture as much of the excess food in this plague, in this pandemic as possible mm-hmm. and redirect it from your many sources, at least in RVA Dine. Well, and that that was the, you know, Michael and I talk about those little slivers of silver lining in the pandemic that early on, because we were in uncharted territory, a lot of that went out the window and we got donations from hotels and the universities and and things that just said, we have all this food. And food manufacturers. And food manufacturers that just said, we have this stuff sitting here. Can you use it? Can you distribute it? And so, you know, we were, we were wild west around here for a bit and it was great because we were able to get in a lot of products. And And so you set up the underground kitchen community first, Mm -hmm. effectively not for profit. Yep. Were you able to take PPP or any sort of assistance from the government to help you out? Not for the nonprofit. Not for that. Well, we were able to. Yeah, we did because we didn't. We didn't have a. We didn't have staff. We had nothing before the pandemic, so um, we were able to write for a lot of granting institutions out there, put things toward food insecurity that we we were able to write for. Obviously, we were competing with a whole lot of other people writing for the same thing. You know, we we tried to go through the city, the county, the state the federal government, and pretty much scraped together whatever we could. And then we had great donors, not only local to Richmond, um, even though people knew that we were obviously not driving meals out to California, but one of our biggest groups when we do mailings that have signed up to get mailings from us are in California. And we've never been there. So we had people in California sending us donations saying, I love what you're doing. Thank you. So that travel, a lot of people from our travels donated to our efforts here. How did you work the logistics of reclaiming, say, fresh salmon or lettuce? Or- Nobody told us we couldn't do it. And so we did it. And my mom, I, my mom grew up, I grew up a single mom of five children. And my mom would make beautiful meals out of nothing. And I think that, that I was uniquely prepared to make something. And our chefs are so talented that they were able to make beautiful one pot nutritious meals to go out to all these folks, a low sodium, fresh vegetables. And what we realized what we were doing indirectly, directly was educating folks on healthy eating, better eating. And a lot of foods that we took for granted, uh, we took for granted, a lot of folks had never had before. Um, one gentleman in his 80s uh, wrote Kate and said, hey, uh, my daughter's vegan and I've been laughing at her for years, but you sent out a tofu chili and I loved it. Can I get more? And we knew then we were on to something. It was an educational process for us because what we took for granted, of uh, we thought everybody ate like was not the case. And then folks have called and say, hey, I've lost 25 pounds eating your food and I feel great. Um, my blood pressure is under control. My diabetes is under control. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And then we, for three years, had those sort of anecdotal testimonies from people in the community. And that's when we decided we're going to keep this thing moving. We're going to do it. And under Kate's leadership, we served over 275,000 meals to date. So that's three years since the inception of the Underground Kitchen Community First Effort. Nearly 300,000 healthy meals delivered throughout the greater Richmond community. And this is going to be ongoing. This is not per the pandemic. This is an ongoing parallel effort to your for-profit efforts, which are back up and running and thriving. Exactly. And now we have, um, with the for-profit, goes a support to the nonprofit. So we're kind of going back to that first year of Underground Kitchen, that 10% of what we make in the for-profit now goes to support sending meals into the community for the nonprofit. Some of our major concentrations is our senior population, our children, and family 
uh, population as well. So the project will launch in April with um, a family meals program. So we'll get three meals ready to go, um, either in the microwave or in the oven. And then they get a food box. And it's a curated food box, almost like what you would get from HelloFresh. And they can either use the recipe card we send to them or tune in live with our chef every Saturday to do cooking classes on healthy eating and preparing wonderful foods for their families. One of the other things about those those food boxes that were kind of building into it is the idea of using uh, simple ingredients and ingredients that not only can stretch to several meals, but that also come under WIC and SNAP. So we're not the, sending the food stamp program, food stamp program right. so that we're teaching them to make things that they'll be able to recreate themselves with the resources that they have to help stretch their budget for food and make sure that they're cooking clean and healthy. Full disclosure, stay with us. Again, this show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. A special shout out to Radio IQ WVTF our NPR News headquarters. You can catch me on WPVM in Asheville. We're out in Ventura County, California on KPPQ. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, I'm in Manchester, Virginia with Kate Houck and Michael Sparks of The Underground Kitchen and The Underground Kitchen Community First Effort, which started in the throes of the pandemic. Uh, this has been a hot pop-up concept, the for-profit side, which has these fabled dinners, which has appeared in several dozen cities. Hush, hush, if you could get on the invite list in the United States. But now this not-for-profit effort has fed nearly 300,000 hungry people in the greater Richmond area over the past three years. Tell me where the disconnects are, Michael. You had a doctor here last night talking about it, that there's so much food waste. Again, I've covered food waste that's going into landfills. Shouldn't there be a logistics effort or a startup or Silicon Valley or someone that can get, and it would be a huge favor to these restaurants that don't have to throw this all out in the dumpster and deal with rodent mitigation and everything to get it to hungry families. I don't know. It's, it's just, there's so many factors. I mean, you know, we were honored to work with two charter schools in Richmond during COVID and uh, actually took them from the USDA program to cooking from scratch um, and being able to use those things in. We saw so many barriers in trying to get to the public school systems because there's so many people for those programs that they have to go to USDA to make that happen. And I, I don't know where the disconnect is, but... And, they- and speaking of those charter schools, when you talk about food waste, um, one in particular we were going to where they had their USDA approved meal, which was you know, canned carrots on a corn dog and I can't beans, maybe something. But most of that, the kids would take, maybe take a bite of corn dog or eat the corn off the you know, the cornbread out the outside, the rest they would throw away. Once we got them cooking from scratch, the kids were not only finishing what was made for them, but were asking to take you know, leftovers home. So there's there's something in that too. It's a I see it in once you get into the government bureaucracy of it, it's a forest for the trees thing. Yes, you're giving them food, but are you giving them food that they're going to eat that's going to make them healthy, that they're going to want to keep eating? Or are you just giving them food and checking the box? And meanwhile, that food is just going in the trash. There is a disconnect out there somewhere. And then, I mean, USDA policy. I mean, I was thinking last night at this sumptuous dinner, that you plated and then the, the the wonderful ingredients in it that something as small as you might be in the checkout line at a Target or a Walmart and you'll see a 50 cent bag of Lay's chips and what kind of incentive policy USDA cross subsidies and everything have to go in keeping that 
unnaturally cheap versus other fresh products unattainable. Well, the really interesting thing is I, I read somewhere that the USDA policies or their food policies hasn't changed since the 1950s. And, you know, one thing interesting about that is milk, you know, uh, as a part of the dinners was really put into fatten Americans up for the war in the 1940s and 50s. And it hasn't changed. Uh, that has to ch change. So, and that's what uh, in one of the childcare programs that we're doing now, most of the kids don't drink the milk. It's required to be there by the USDA, but most of them don't drink it. So again, we're talking about waste in packaging and transport in farmland taken from growing to milk cattle. And it starts once you hit that domino, it fans out in so many different directions and ends up in so many political mires that it becomes untenable almost to, to begin to parse it apart to figure out wh which part to fix first. Michael, food inflation has walloped everybody, but especially in the lower income basket. If you think about things like bread eggs. and milk, eggs, I wanted Good to get eggs Lord, where eggs. you could go to Kroger and get a dozen eggs for 88 cents before this inflationary spike of the avian flu. Now it's closer to $5. And that, that was such a you know universally relied upon source of protein and maybe iron and fat and various right. other things. And now it's looked at as kind of out of reach. People joke about omelets being a luxury dish. How has inflation affected this effort? Pivot, 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 pivot. We, we do what we do in our partnerships with, you know, a major bean uh, manufacturer and chefs being ingenious and doing incredible things. So it's what we cooking what you have and making use of that. And I think my mom, thank you, mom, but she taught us how to make a way out of no way. And, uh, you know, it goes back to uh, the pastor who told us when uh, Jesus was in the wilderness with all the folks and Jesus said, disciples uh, asked, disciples asked uh, how are you, what are we going to eat? And Jesus says, you feed them. And that's sort of the thing I think about well, what we get, we make into beautiful dishes. You know, it just happens that way. And these chefs are so ingenious. They are culturally sensitive. So, you know, uh, we're introducing new foods to uh, different cultures. Um, it, it just works out that way. And I think that I, I would have to agree. It's the it's the pivot, pivot, pivot. You know, the the eggs are becoming the the tulip crisis of whatever fifteen, whenever that was, and so we say, okay, so that's not an option now. Drop and and pivot. Mm -hmm. um, Has inflation caused another round of food insecurity in your observation? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, most definitely. And again, being clever, having talented chefs, being able to have use what we can use to make these proteins and vegetables work together. It's not that hard. Well, it's hard, but it's not that hard. One of, one of the things that I think, again, a silver lining in COVID with us being out and, and that being such a unique experience, um, being out and talking to people during that time when no one else was out there allowed us to begin to build trust in communities where trust is not something that's given easily, if ever. And so we've been able to maintain that through our community connections as we have to pivot on this. Okay, so last year we told you bring those eggs or bring this or bring whatever is useful into your diet. And now you can't. Um, but because we were there and because they recognize us, we can say, okay, we know we told you that before, but here's where we're going now. Like come with us. And I'd like to think that through our community partners up there, thanks to them, they're able to reinforce that and say, I know they told you one thing and now we have to do another, but 
it's okay. And so people are still willing to listen. They're still willing to come along on this like clean eating, let's get this fixed journey with us. Whereas if we didn't have that weird time that was COVID, I don't know how you could just march in to any of these communities and say, hey, we have a good idea about how to do this. I don't know that people would pay any attention to us. So Michael, close us out. Uh, is there a, uh, going forward, is there kind of a module that you say descend into Manhattan or descend into Miami and then take on uh, a local not-for-profit that kind of is a buddy uh, to uh, one of the events that's ticketed. Does this kind of port, does it scale? It's scaling. And it's I think for for me and uh, Kate and the, our other partner, Nancy, it's happening organically. So we go day by day of what that looks like post-COVID. I think that one of the things that we really want to concentrate on for the for-profit is food in that wonderful history you talked about in the beginning of the broadcast, uh, where we are, who we are, what our foods look like, uh, celebrating that sort of the whole food ways is where we're going in 2023 through 24, uh, talking about uh, where that where the food is going on. And as far as that, as that goes on to the nonprofit, exploring those things and cultural and diversity and inclusion, I think that's where we're looking at in the next year to two years. And on the, the nonprofit side, we definitely want to build something that's scalable and portable, especially in the senior and child feeding program areas, because the children in particular, so many things that we deal with as a society now come out of this poor nutrition for kids early on and the lack of a full range of development that's that's just not available to kids that aren't getting proper nutrition. So it's important to us that that is scalable because the more the more kids we can get eating this way, um, the better it is for them, their families, and for the community as a whole. Michael Sparks and Kate Haug of the Underground Kitchen and the Underground Kitchen Community First charity effort, which is now three years old, has already delivered nearly 280,000 healthy meals throughout the greater Richmond community. Please, please come back on the show. Thank you. We would love to. (laughs) Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Robin. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, Nanette Shore, and Chef Steve Glenn. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and recommend us. A warm hello to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF, Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. And message me, of course, to carry full disclosure on your air. Plus, catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 